I'll be reading from the Pew Bible, page 833, at the bottom of the page, beginning with the portion that says, The Boy Jesus in the Temple. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and among their friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Word of God for the people of God. So many years ago, back when I was, was just starting out in ministry, I pastored a, a little bitty country church. I loved, I loved that little bitty country church. It didn't take me long to discover that the people in, in that congregation had a, a deep and unshakable belief in the deep and unbreakable love of God. You know, up on the, the back wall of the sanctuary in that church, way up on the wall, there was a clock. And at some point in the history of the church, some unknown person had got up on a ladder and painted a message next to that clock. At some point in the history of the church, somebody had got up on a ladder with a paintbrush and in great big bright red letters, this person had painted the message, God is love. The people of the church used to say that that message was was up there on the back wall of the church so that the people of the church would, would see it and keep it in mind as they went out into the world. Of course, the people of the church also used to say that the clock was up there on the back wall of the church so the preacher would see it and, and keep it in mind during the preaching of the Sunday sermon. I love the people of that church. They were my kind of people. They were the kind of people who would lean forward when the preacher tells a story. They were the kind of people who would, would laugh when the preacher tells a joke. I, I felt a, a fast and a deep connection with all of the people of that church, all of the people except for Sean. Now, Sean was a young man, 28 years old, and Sean was on the autism spectrum. And his disability meant that he wasn't able to, to live at home with his dad, Victor. Sean lived during the week at a care home. And then on the weekends, Victor would, would pick up Sean from the care home. And Victor and Sean would, would spend the weekend together. And every Sunday morning, without fail, Victor would bring Sean to the church. And they would sit in the very back row of that little, that little bitty country church. And, and the very first Sunday that I was there at that church, the very first time I climbed up into the pulpit to, to preach, 
preach a sermon, I looked out over the congregation and I saw in the, the back pew of the church, Sean was doing something that, that seemed just, just a, a little bit curious. So, so all through the worship service, Sean was, was engaged and he was doing all the things that the rest of the people were doing. He was right there with the, the rest of the congregation. But then as soon as I started preaching, as soon as I started the sermon, all of a sudden, Sean spun around in his pew. He turned around and looked up at the clock that was on that back wall. And then he stayed there like that through the entire sermon, the whole sermon. He was turned around facing the other direction, staring at this clock that was up on the back wall of the church. Well, I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't, didn't have a lot of experience at that point in my life with people who are on the, the autism spectrum. And so I wasn't sure what to, to do with that. I just figured, well, maybe it was one of those things. Maybe it was just a, a coincidence that he turned around and happened to look up at the clock where, when I, I started preaching the sermon. But then the next Sunday morning, he did, he did it again. He did exactly the same thing. All through the service, he was engaged and he was, was participating along with the whole rest of the congregation. But then as soon as I started preaching, as soon as I started the sermon, he spun around in his pew and he stared up at the clock on the back wall of the church through the entire sermon. He did this every Sunday morning, week after week after week. And I have to tell you, it was a little bit discouraging as a preacher to, to look out during the sermon and see somebody turned around staring up at the clock on the, on the back wall. And it was, it was even more discouraging as a pastor because I felt like I was, was failing this young man as a pastor. I felt, like, I felt like I wasn't connecting with him the way that I wanted to connect with him. I felt like I didn't know how to care for him in the way that he needed to be cared for. I felt like I was, I was not doing the job that God had called me to that church to do. And then finally, one Sunday morning after worship, I saw, I saw Sean's dad, Victor, standing off to the side of the fellowship hall all by himself. You know, people were eating cookies and they were drinking coffee. And, and Sean had gone off to find himself some cookies. And so Victor was standing there all by himself. And, and so I said, this is it. This is my opportunity to ask, what on earth is this all about? What is going on? Why does he do this? And so I made my way over to Victor. And I, I said to him, I said, Victor, I have, I have this question that I've been dying to ask you. And Victor, he smiled and he said to me, you want to know why my son turns around and stares at the clock every time you start the sermon? And I said, yes, that is exactly what I want to know. Tell me, am I, am I doing something wrong? Have I offended him in some way? Am I doing something to make him feel uncomfortable or unsafe? If there's something I need to change, then I'll change it. Just tell me, what, what can I do? What am I missing here? And then Victor, he smiled again and, and very gently he said, well, the good news is, preacher, he said, the good news is it's not about you. He said, Sean has done this to every pastor who we've ever had at this church. And what you need to understand is that when Sean does that, when he turns around and looks up at the back wall, it's not that he's looking away from you. It's that he's, he's looking at the clock. And then Victor explained to me that clocks were Sean's thing. Now, I don't know if you know this about people who are on the autism spectrum, but, but many people who are on the autism spectrum will, will latch on to a thing. They will find something that makes sense to them, something that is, is fascinating to them. They'll learn about it. They'll, they'll study it. They can spend hours on end talking about it without ever getting tired of it. Some people, for some people, it's train schedules. For some people, it's, it's baseball statistics. For Sean, the thing was clocks. He loved, he loved clocks. Victor 
Esther explained to me that, that for Sean, people didn't make sense. Sean found people to be unpredictable and confusing and intimidating, but, but clocks were the exact opposite. He loved clocks because they were orderly and predictable, and they always did exactly what you expected them to do. And so Sean loved to stare at clocks. He loved to watch the hands sweep across the face of the clock. He loved to take apart clocks and see how all of the gears inside the clock interacted. He loved to talk to people about all of his favorite clocks. It's not, it's not that he doesn't like you, Victor said to me. It's that he loves that clock. And I said, okay, but that doesn't explain why he only does it during the sermon. Why is it that through all of the rest of the service, he's, he's engaged and he's there and he's interacting. And then when I start preaching, that's the minute when he turns around and looks up at the clock and Victor says, oh, he says, oh, okay, pastor, I hope that you won't take this the wrong way, but, but here's the thing. The sermon is the only part of the service that he doesn't care about. He said the whole rest of the service he really enjoys. The rest of the service makes sense to him. When we, when we say the Lord's Prayer, he says it with us. When we say the creed, he recites every word. When we sing the doxology, he sings along with the, the rest of the congregation. And those things make sense to him. Those things speak to him because they are exactly the same. Every single Sunday morning, we do them in the exact same way. They're orderly. They're predictable. They happen just like clockwork. Those things, those things connect with him. Him. And he said, I hope you won't take this the wrong way, Pastor. He said, but I don't bring my son to church so he can listen to the sermon. I don't bring my son to worship so he can hear your voice. I bring him to the church so he can hear God's voice. I bring him to the church because I, as a father, have to believe that somewhere in all of the things that we do here, somewhere in, in the creeds and the prayers and the doxologies, somewhere in the cookies and the coffees, somewhere in, in being surrounded by all of these people who know him and love him just exactly the way that he is, somewhere in all of that, I have to believe that somehow he will hear God's voice and he will understand when in what Every way he is able to understand that God is love. And that's what faith looks like. Faith looks like a father who brings his son to God's house over and over and over again because he believes that God really is there. Faith looks like a father who is overwhelmed by the task and responsibility of parenting a special needs child. And so he brings his son to the church, to the house of God over and over and over again because he believes that if he just puts his son in that place often enough, somehow God will speak to him in a way that his earthly father will never be able to speak to him. Somehow God will do for things, do things for him. His heavenly father will do things for him that, that his earthly father never can. That's what faith looks like. And that's what we see happening in this morning's gospel reading. You know, Joseph must have been terrified when he found out that he was going to be a father. And that's a, that's a scary and exciting and overwhelming moment for any person, that moment when you discover that suddenly you're going to be responsible for this young person, that you're being called by God to shape the life of a brand new human being. That's a scary and intimidating moment for, for any person. But it must have been that much more overwhelming for Joseph when he discovered that he was not just going to be a father, but he was going to be the father of the Son of God. He was going to be responsible for raising the Messiah, the Savior of all creation. I have to imagine that in the months before Jesus was born, Joseph must have had a lot of long and sleepless nights. Can't you just picture Joseph tossing and turning and lying awake in bed and, and in the middle of the night there in the darkness shouting out to the heavens asking God, why, why have you picked me? Are you sure about this? 
Don't you know that, that I'm a carpenter? I'm not a professor of theology. I don't have a doctorate in divinity. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a, a Bible scholar. Surely there must have been someone in the world who was more qualified to do this than I am. God, what if I, what if I mess this up? What if I am so bad at this parenting thing that somehow I mess up your plan to save the world? Are you sure you want me to do this? What if I can't give your son the things that he needs? What if I can't say to him the things that need to be said to him? What if I'm not up to this? I imagine that Joseph must have had that conversation with God over and over and over again in the months before Jesus was born. But maybe I imagine that Joseph had that conversation with God because I remember having that same conversation with God myself in the months before my children were born. When you discover that you're about to become a, a parent, this, this weight of responsibility begins to, to settle on your shoulders. And I remember so many moments in the middle of the night crying out to God, what if I'm not up to this? What if I'm really bad at this? What if, what if I mess this up? Joseph must have had that conversation with God over and over and over again. He must have felt scared and intimidated and overwhelmed by this thing that God had called him to do. And so somewhere in those months, somewhere in one of those long, sleepless nights, Joseph made a decision. He decided that he was going to give his son the only gift he knew how to give him. He was going to do for his son the only thing he knew to do. He was going to take his son to the house of God over and over again, and he was going to trust that God would say the things that needed to be said, and God would do the things that needed to be done. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Now, we don't know how often Joseph went to the synagogue before he became a father, but we know that after Jesus was born, Joseph and his family never missed an opportunity to go to worship. If the synagogue was open, that Joseph and his family were there. They went to, to worship over and over again, come rain, come sleet, come snow. They were there in a pew listening to the word of God among the people of God. And not only that, but, but Joseph made sure that he brought Jesus to the temple in the great big city of Jerusalem. Even, even though Joseph was just a, a poor threadbare carpenter. He saved his pennies so that every time there was a big religious festival happening, he could close up shop and take his family on this road trip to the big city of Jerusalem so Jesus could sing God's praises in the, the very house of the Lord, so Jesus could experience the presence of God there among all the people of God. They never missed a Passover festival in the city of Jerusalem, this morning's gospel reading tells us. And it was on one of those trips... It was on one of those visits to the big city of Jerusalem that suddenly one day Mary and Joseph lost track of Jesus. They were in this big crowd of people and one minute Jesus was there and then the next minute he was gone and they couldn't find him anywhere and they searched and they searched and they searched for Jesus. They looked all around the city where they went down the roads and the streets and the back alleys. They checked every place where they thought a 12-year-old boy might, might get into trouble. They looked everywhere they could think of for Jesus. They looked for Jesus for days and then finally after days of searching, they found Jesus. And when they found him, where was he? Jesus was there in the temple. He was teaching the teachers. He was explaining the ways of God to the religious leaders and to the elders of, of God's people. And when Mary and Joseph found him there in the temple, they were furious. They were so angry. They said, Jesus, how could you do this to us? Where have you been? Don't you know that we have been looking everywhere for you? And in that moment, as he looks at his parents and sees the anger on their faces, what does Jesus say? He says, didn't you know that I would be here? Didn't you know that I would have to be in my father's house? 
This is the last story that we have about Joseph in all the Gospels. Did you know that? Joseph, after this story, after this moment when Jesus is 12 years old, he's never mentioned again. He drops out of the story completely. We don't know. Nobody knows what happens to Joseph after this moment. But I believe that even though Joseph is never mentioned again in all of the Gospels, I believe that Joseph continues to be part of the Gospel story. As Jesus grows up and then when he becomes a, a wandering rabbi, as he begins his ministry, there's, there's this thing that becomes his trademark style. There is this thing that people notice about Jesus. They notice that he talks about God in a way that nobody else talks about God. When Jesus preaches, when he shares parables with the people, the people turn to each other and say, do you hear how this, this man is talking about God? He is talking about God as if he has seen God's face. He talks about God as if he has a personal relationship with God. He talks about God as if the love of God has taken up residence inside of his heart, down in the depths of his soul. He talks about God in a way that, that no one else we've ever heard talks about God. The people knew that there was something different in the way that Jesus talked about God, but they didn't know what they didn't know was that Jesus talked about God in that way. Jesus talked about God in that deeply personal way because when he was a boy, he had a father who decided that the greatest gift a father could give to his son, the greatest gift a parent could give to a child, the greatest gift that a grandparent or a neighbor or a friend or a caring individual in this world can give to any child is to take that child to the house of the Lord, to put that child among God's community of loving and beloved people so that somewhere in all of the things that we do, somehow that child can hear the voice of God and understand in whatever way they are able to understand that God is love. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the people who brought us here. We give you thanks for those people who played Joseph to us, those people who gave us the gift of bringing us to the house of God so we could hear the voice of God. God, we pray especially today for the young people of this congregation. We pray for the young people in our families. We pray for the children in this community that in some way you would speak to them in a way that their earthly parents can't, that in some way that you would do for them this Christmas the things that even we can't. God, we pray that in some way, in some way the children among us would begin to hear and believe and understand that you love them because you are love. In the name of the Son, we pray. Amen.